This is episode number 124, The Core Four, with Steph Godro. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. You can make positive change. You can want to change. But what is informing that? And is that then sustainable? Anybody can eat perfect for a week or go on a crash diet for a month. Can you sustain that? No. So what are the tools that people would need to make that stick long term to create the consistency that then creates the results? I hope you guys are having a great week. And I wanted to let you know that I'm going to be in Nampa, Idaho this weekend. Nampa is near Boise, Idaho. And I'm doing an event called Inspire Your Ride in conjunction with Rolling H Cycles. And I will be going on a group ride on Friday and also giving a keynote speech on Saturday at the event. So you can get your tickets online, Inspire Your Ride, and you can find that at Rolling H Cycles. And hopefully I'll see some of you there. I also have my Moxie and Grit limited edition cycling jerseys for sale on moxieandgrit.com. That's M-O-X-Y and grit.com. I only ordered a small amount, so they're limited. So if you want to get yours, make sure that you order it now and they'll be shipping around August 16th, but you can only order them until August 2nd. So make sure you get on it. I have men's and women's cycling jerseys, and I think you guys will think they're pretty cool. And last, before I get into this week's guest, I have a cookbook that I published called The Plant Powered Tribe, and it has 25 recipes that are easy to make, that are fully nutritious to sustain you as a human and as an athlete, and it's an e-cookbook, so you can get it on moxieandgrit.com as well, and I've had some really great feedback. People are really enjoying the recipes. I have breakfast, smoothies, lunch, dinner, snacks, sauces, so those are all my favorite recipes that I make on a regular basis. And I wanted to share those with you guys. So you can get my Plant Power Tribe e-cookbook on moxieandgrit.com. We're actually working on a Plant Power Tribe website right now, and I'm pretty excited about that. And also, it is free if you want to join our Plant Power Tribe Facebook group. There's over 1,600 members in this Facebook group, and you don't have to be a vegan. You don't have to want to eat 100% plant-based. It's just a place where people go to talk about healthy wins and healthy habits and just to support one another because who you surround yourself with really matters. All right, so let's get into this week's guest, Steph Godro. And Steph was a previous podcast guest back in October of 2018. And I went ahead and linked that episode in the show notes if you want to hear more from Steph. But Steph Godro's mission is to help women create bigger, bolder, fiercer lives by building health from the inside out. From her incredibly powerful Instagram posts of 200,000 followers to her best-selling books, she creates meaningful content to help people change for the better. And even if you're not a woman, you will find a lot of value in this podcast episode. And in her new book, The Core Four, which is coming out July 30th, and you can actually pre-order it on Amazon now, it covers four pillars, eating nourishing foods, strengthening your body, recharging your energy, and getting your mindset right. And I personally enjoyed this book because it's very interactive with worksheets and even journal prompts. And she is also the podcast host of a chart-topping podcast called Harder to Kill Radio. 
Steph is well-versed in creating changes in life, and she was a teacher for 12 years and created a successful food blog. I think I met Steph about 10 years ago, and it's been really cool to see everything that she's accomplished since then. She transitioned again and spends her time now as a nutritional therapy consultant, a coach, an author, blogger, podcaster, and is also the host and founder of the Women's Strength Summit. So Steph stays pretty dang busy. In this episode, you'll learn where Steph came up with the core four and more about holistic coaching, how to change your narrative to have more self-compassion, celebrating success and having a healthy relationship with success, what ultradian rhythms are and how to better manage your energy, what to do during a break from work, and body image, the perception of what the scale says, and BMI. I think there's a lot of really valuable conversation in this podcast. And if you enjoy it, please take a screenshot and share the show on social media with your friends and tag both myself and Steph Godro, or just shoot me an email. I love getting messages from you guys about how this podcast is helping you. It definitely helps keep me going. And if you want to support the show financially, you can kick a couple bucks a month to the show at patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show. All right, let's get into this episode with Steph Godro. Welcome back to the show, Steph. Thanks for having me back. It's good to return. Yeah, I'm looking the, forward to it. The last time we chatted, you were working on your book, The Core Four, and it's super cool that I've gotten an early copy and a sneak peek at what you've been up to. <laughs> I always joke with people that if this was a human baby, I was baking, it would have been out and it would be already several months old by this point. So it's been quite the process. It's an elephant baby. I think elephants are in the womb quite a bit longer. So it's just an elephant. <laughs> it's awesome. Oh, a much longer gestation period for this project. But uh, I think it's going to be pretty awesome when it comes out. Cool. So for those of uh, our listeners that haven't heard our other episode and haven't heard of you, do you want to give people like a brief overview of who you are and what you're about? Oh, gosh, yeah. I'm always playing around with how do I introduce myself and what I do. And it really depends on who I'm talking to. But I basically sum up what I do by actually saying why I do what I do. And that's to help women build inner and outer strength so that they can use their voices and change the world. And what I do within that scope varies. And I'm a very multi-passionate person. And I am you know, technically a nutritional therapy consultant and a weightlifting coach and an author and a podcaster. So those are kind of the what's of what I do. But I'm really interested in helping women especially look at health in a very holistic way and in particular with fitness and nutrition and mindset and helping them to apply the concepts of improving your health and improving your fitness, for example, but in a way that's very sustainable and approachable. And the methodology behind it and the rationale behind it is that you really want to care for yourself. You want to nourish yourself instead of punish yourself. So yeah, that's, that's kind of in a, <laughs> in a nutshell <laughs> what I do, but uh, it looks different every day. Sometimes I'm talking with my community about nutrition. Sometimes I'm doing podcasts about mindset. Sometimes I'm sitting down and doing workouts and posting those online. So it really takes a, a variety of different approaches. Yeah. And I really look up to you as a person and as a business owner. And I feel like I can really relate on a lot of levels because I personally struggle with just focusing on one thing. And I've had the feedback from other people saying, well, you're trying to do all these different elements 
you're passionate about too many things. So like you previously were classified as like a food blogger and then you've diversified quite a bit. So how did you decide to diversify instead of to focus singularly, I guess? <laughs> I couldn't not. I mean, that's the only, that's the short answer. I couldn't not because that's really, when I take a look at my own sort of journey through the last 20 years of my life, 25 years of my life and the things that I've struggled with and the health issues that I've dealt with and coming to a place of acceptance and embracing my body for what it is. And then using this extra energy that I've had (laughs) instead of obsessing about my body to help other people. When I look at that journey overall, And what it's taken to get to this point, it was not just eating a perfect diet. It wasn't eating perfect at all, actually. It's completely counterintuitive to that. It wasn't just finding the methodology of exercise that I really enjoyed and worked for me. It wasn't just working on the mindset. It was really all of those things together. And again, a very holistic approach. And yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are people who, um, (laughs) you know, when you can, when you look out into the business world, especially, and you're no stranger to that, when you look out into the business world, and you look at what high powered entrepreneurial folks are teaching, it's usually, you know, you've got a niche down, niche down, niche down. And while I do agree with that to a certain extent, and you need to know who you're talking to and who your audience is, you know, for me, it's just hardcore focus on for example, nutritional therapy at the expense of everything else, when that that client would could come to me and say, you know, I'm I'm doing all the things in this particular area. Why am I still struggling? And you have to kind of zoom out and say, well, what else is going on in your life? And, you know, I think it's people should uh, other entrepreneurs and other business people. I mean, you really need to kind of know where your scope of practice is for sure and know where For example, I'm not a mental health professional. I share things from my own perspective and my own experience. And I think there are mindset tools that you can apply without helping people dig into their past, so to say. And sometimes those lines get a little bit blurry. But for me, with my experience and knowing what's made the biggest impact for me, I just I just can't not because I look at the person I see the whole. And when we don't exist in these separate buckets of, you know, we're going to think about our nutrition today and then we're going to think about our fitness next week and, you know, we're going to deal with our stress levels next month. I mean, yes, we have different focuses and those might shift over time, but we are still whole complete people. And, and so for me, I don't know, I just could, I just can't, (laughs) I can't not. And it, it does touch what I do does touch a lot of those different areas. Cool. So how did you come up with the core four for your book? Yeah, good question. Uh, and again, I, I kind of think about back to my own experiences. And for me, food was really, I kind of joke that food is like the gateway drug to wellness for a lot of people. We all eat, obviously, like we could choose to not exercise, but we all have to eat at, at some point, right? So food is a very common thing that people will turn to as they're looking for change, as they're looking for improvement, as they want to feel better. But it didn't end there. And so I thought, okay, you know, what was my own experience like? And then as I was working with people and really paying a lot of attention to my community, again, it wasn't just the food that they were trying to deal with in their lives. Certainly that's one aspect. 
but you can have a perfect diet and your stress levels could be off the chart and, <laughs> or you could be stressing out about your perfect diet and trying to eat perfectly, which is completely counterproductive for your goals. So when I was thinking about in 2015, putting together a coaching program that would really help people develop sustainable habits that then they could dip back into the, this toolbox of, you know, practices over time and pull out the tools that were helpful for them or would make an impact. That's really where the core four started. And it started as actually three pillars. And then over time, I added in sort of sleep and energy management as its own pillar and sort of put it together in this, uh, what was at the time a four week coaching program to really give people the latitude to explore these different pillars, right? It was food and fitness and mindset. And then again, energy was added in later on. But to explore these four pillars in a way that was not, I mean, there was guidance and a framework, but not prescriptive and not restrictive and gave people the ability to experience what it could be like to, yes, want to make improvements in these areas without the typical shame and guilt and all the other stuff that goes along with lifestyle change quite often, to be frank, where it's like, you know, I need to change things. I'm unhappy with myself. Uh, I don't like where things are, which is all well and good. You know, sometimes you get to a point where you're really fed up with stuff, but then to make change from a place of, I really hate myself and I'm going to kind of beat myself into submission with all these negative tactics and deprivation and using exercise as punishment and really giving people an opportunity to say, wait, well, wait a minute, we can, we can want to make change in our lives, but what's the perspective that we're coming from? And sometimes, yes, that does involve getting really honest with yourself about what you've been choosing to do. And that's fine. But setting up the possibility that you can make positive change, you can want to change but what is informing that? And is that then sustainable? Because anybody can eat perfect for a week or go on a crash diet for a month or whatever. Can you sustain that? No. So what are the tools that people would need to make that stick long term to create the consistency that then creates the results? So that's really where the, the genesis of the book really came from was doing this program online for a few years with lots of different people and then thinking, OK, this is really helping people achieve different outcomes. And it's so funny because when I was I asked my former clients, you know, can you I'd love for you to share a testimonial like what did you learn from this? What did it bring to your life? And they were so different and I thought that was so amazing. It wasn't just like, I lost 10 pounds, I'm happy now. It was stuff like, you know, I finally started to gain some self-awareness around the own chatter that's going on in my head. Or I got the, you know, I finally realized that I had the power to make changes in my life. I didn't have to wait for someone else's permission. Or I had the courage to ask for a raise that's been long overdue. And there are so many different experiences that people had, but it's because there was that inner transformation or the beginnings of it. You know, I don't promise people that you're going to figure it all out in six weeks. That's just unreasonable. But it almost like gives that pause, that environment to experience that. And then what people have gone on to do is just amazing and so diverse. So I, I kept thinking, you know, I want to bring this to a larger 
audience. I want to impact more people with this and really, you know, and it just sounds kind of, <laughs> sounds kind of conceited, but like start a movement of people who want, yes, who want to change it. We want to do it in a way that honors who we are, embraces who we are, sees that we are in, innately and inherently powerful and no one needs to fill us up with that. We already have it. Just a matter of can we get out of our own way? So that's really where the book came from. <laughs> yeah, and I think that it can be challenging for people who are really interested in self-improvement because you can get so focused on doing everything perfectly, like trying to be well-rounded, holistic, and start beating yourself up because you aren't doing all the things all the time every day. And that's where I think the crux of self-help can be damaging. And I think that something you've done really well is you haven't made it restrictive and it's just about getting better. It's not about being perfect, but it can be really hard sometimes whenever you're always searching for that improvement. And then like the searching for happiness or calm or fitness or whatever it is you're looking for, there's never going to be that top of the mountain where you can just sit there and feel complacent and content and fulfilled because you're always going to be reaching for that next thing. So like, and this is more on the mindset and energy side of things, but how do you personally deal with or cope with the balance between trying to improve and get better and then also feeling proud of how far you've come and what you've accomplished? Yeah, that's a super good question. And the other day I was standing in my kitchen and as I am want to do. Sometimes I'm just cooking or washing dishes or tidying up. And sometimes people call this, you know, like the shower brain where all of a sudden you have ideas. And I wrote down in my phone and I just brought it up that I wrote a note in my phone. And I was thinking about the, I jotted this down and I'm going to do a podcast about it, but I wrote the false promise of arrival. Like I have arrived. I have achieved this thing. It is now mine. And what people don't often give credence to is that once you achieve the thing, I don't care what it is, it's going to be riding, you know, 100 miles, or it's going to be getting that job that you've always wanted, or it's going to be losing those last five or 10 pounds or squatting 200 pounds or whatever the thing is that you feel like once I've gotten that, I'm going to have arrived. The thing that no one talks about is that once you get the thing, then you've got to maintain the thing and then how... <laughs> oh no, what do we do now? <laughs> Especially if it's something like weight loss, which comes up all the time in my community. And I'm a huge proponent of health gain first and reframing that conversation. But let's say, okay, you do the 100 mile race or, or you do squat the 200 pounds or whatever it is. Now what? And we oftentimes get that hit of dopamine and it's like, I did it and I'm happy for a few minutes, an hour, a week a month, whatever. And then we're like, okay, now what, now what? Or we do get the, the 10 pound weight loss. And then we want to, we're staring at the scale, like, don't you dare go up ever again. And, and so it, it just brings me back to, and this is, is kind of where I'm going with this is that even personally, I try to focus mostly on what is the practice that I am engaging in and where is the contentment in the practice of that thing? kind of slash, how can I practice compassion for myself in this moment? And you're so right. And I, I will raise my hand as a, a recovering perfectionist. And that has a lot of stuff to, to kind of dig back into. 
my childhood and, and my past and why I felt like I needed to be perfect to get attention. And I mean, so much stuff there. Suffice to say, when I'm I'm feeling those things like, oh, I should be this, I should be doing that, I should be doing this, I should be doing that, right? What is the lens I choose to use in that situation? Is it the lens of self-compassion or is it the lens of, you know, what is this thing that I need to do to arrive at this moment? And for me, yes, I have those built in habits now that are the things that I just do because they make me feel good and they help me maintain a baseline of health and fitness, completely owning and recognizing that my experience and my privilege is quite different than perhaps a lot of other people. So other people's maintenance of that stuff may look quite different. But for me, if I feel myself getting into the should of it all, you know, I should be doing this, I should be doing that. That's a, that's a huge sign for me that I need to take a step back and say, you know, what is the compassionate and kind thing to do for myself right now? And sometimes it is not going to the gym. Like this happened last week. I, uh, Tuesday night, started to feel kind of stuffed up. And I was like, oh, interesting. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, maybe something's brewing. And I woke up, sure enough, Wednesday morning and had a completely stuffed up nose. And I felt fine otherwise, which was kind of weird. But I could have made myself go to the gym Wednesday morning. Every more every Wednesday morning, I go to jujitsu at seven o'clock in the morning. That's like my scheduled time. I get my workout in. It's part of my day so that I don't spend all day working. And I woke up on Wednesday morning and I thought, you know what? What's okay? The thing I normally would do, it's my routine, it's my habit, is to go to the gym at 7 a.m. What's the kind thing to do for myself right now? The kind thing to do is stay home and also for the other people that are at the gym, right? <laughs> Not spread that around, but, you know, we oftentimes get into these battles. And so I think that, yes, there is there is something to be said for what is my body saying right now, as opposed to what is my brain saying? My body was definitely saying, you're starting to get sick, probably stay home. My brain could have said, well, yeah, okay, but you know, you always go at this time. And what is that going to mean? Are you being lazy? You know, are you just going to lose your, your routine and lose your habits? And the thing is, is that we all have that. And I find that for my, the people I work with, that's the, the biggest crux of the issue is, you know, oftentimes they'll do a, a two week program or a month long program. And it's like, be perfect and like white knuckle it and willpower your way through this. And you didn't eat sugar for a month. Great. Well, what's going to happen? You know, you have to live in the real world. You are going to live a life that's dominated by unexpected things happening. How do you respond when that happens? Do you let the, you know, three days you were out of the gym, like myself, the three or four days you were out of the gym serve as a justification for completely throwing away that routine? Or do you say, you know what, the kind thing for me to do was to rest, let my body recuperate and recover, feel better next week, and then go back. So do we let those things stop us? Again, am I only searching for the moment of arrival or am I invested in the process? And do I acknowledge that the process is inherently messy and there will be times where you're nailing it or times where you're not making progress or times where you're backsliding and that that's a part of it, that mistakes will be made, but that does not necessarily serve as justification for completely stopping what you're doing and saying, well, the streak is broken. I might as well just wait till June 1st 
and go back. You know, it's a fresh month. No, I mean, we need, you know, starting at the next right opportunity is really important. So I think that's a really great question. And it's so nuanced for so many different people. But can we stay invested in the process? Can we give ourselves that kindness? And another kind of arm to that question is success and our perception of success, because a lot of times we'll achieve something, achieve a goal. And then, and I don't know if this is women do this more than men. You probably have more experience with that than I do just with all the women you get to talk to, but it's like, we'll achieve something, a race result or a promotion or like an article that we wrote that did well. And then we'll just like tear it down instead of being proud of our result. We'll say, well, it could have been this or like there wasn't these people at the event or like, well, it's not at this level of success, like for publishing or whatever, whatever, whatever. And we downplay our achievements and make them less than instead of celebrating them. And it's really hard to do. So like in terms of celebrating successes and feeling proud of whatever that success is, instead of saying, well, I'll give an example. I got fifth at nationals and I should be proud of that. And I'm not like, and I'm proud that I did my best, but when I say I got fifth at nationals and then not say anything after that, I feel like my stomach starts to crawl because I feel like that's not good enough and I could have done better and blah, 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 blah. But we tend to just like not be proud of our successes and it's really hard to just sit there with it and just say, yeah, like that's what it is. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I think for me, it's been it's tough, right? There's, I feel like there's always this push pull in life where yes, we want to challenge ourselves to do better, especially those of us who are driven and competitive. And, but then there's the flip side to that, which is, you know, where are we looking for validation? Where are we looking for self-worth? And yes, I always encourage people as much as possible to look for self-worth outside of, for example, aesthetics or body composition or scale weight, or, you know, I work with a very general population of of women, but also saying, you know, it is okay to want more, but again, where's that tipping point between being content with what I have, or at least being able to acknowledge in the moment, right? That self-awareness, that presence of, Hey, you know what? Life's really good. Even though I didn't get the, I didn't stand on the top of the podium. I showed up, I did this, I did that. So there is for sure a push pull. I think for me, what it comes down to is keeping blinders on a little bit more than always seeking to compare. And this is very, very hard to do. I mean, I struggle with this as well. In fact, I was on social media earlier. I was on Instagram and scrolling through and I saw somebody that I follow who launched a product. And the first thing I I sort of thought was, that's amazing. I'm happy for them. Also, why am I not doing more? That happens to you me know, where, <laughs> yeah, yeah. where am I missing opportunities? And I think, and I really don't, I don't remember where this quote comes from, but it's the quote is mission over metrics. And I try to recenter myself over and over and over again. And this is always bringing, bringing the, the attention kind of back to that focus because you will wander. I mean, it's like meditation, right? Your mind's going to (laughs) wander. Can you bring it back to the center again? Can you bring it back to the breath? Can you bring it back to the calm and knowing that we will wander? And so I think, yes, being a part of, and that's part of what we do, right? We are on social media or we are in communities online for support or wherever it is. It's very easy to get lost in the comparison. 
but knowing what your mission is super important. Knowing how you define success, very important because that may look different for different people. And I find that those moments where I do get the most like, Oh, I should be doing this or, Oh, I should be doing that. I start to run other people's races instead of running my own or riding my own. <laughs> and so can I continue to come back to that and be content with what is and what I have now? Because I think there is a tendency to go toward that scarcity mindset of, you know, I don't have enough. I, I'm not doing enough. Where could I be doing more? And yes, I feel like for some people having a little bit of that is, is the carrot that can helps them continue to move forward and just try to be better, be a better human, do better. But at what point does that tip into a pervasive thought of like, I'm never good enough. I can't compare to all these different people. And the, the fact of the matter is, is that we don't see what's going on behind the scenes. And a lot of times, especially in the entrepreneurial world, and I'm not calling out anybody in particular, but there are so many people who are not transparent about what they, and I'm not saying they have to be transparent, but it's important to remember that there's a, a lot of lack of transparency about what it takes to get to a certain quote level in their business, people just to to get, you know, a certain number of they've built a social community or they have a certain number of blog followers or they get a certain number of podcast downloads or they're making a certain amount of revenue. Well, yes, or you know, we seven figure launch. Well, how much money did we spend? <laughs> on that how much money did I pay myself right like there there's so many different ways that that's measured in the entrepreneurial world especially and I feel like there's a huge lack of transparency so we get people who are solo bootstrappers which is kind of where I started and doing everything myself and now I have I do work with some contractors and I have some people I, I partner with part-time I don't have any full-time employees right now but I think there's this sort of perception that we see the person who's the face of the brand and we think, gosh, they're doing this all themselves. And like, what is wrong? I should be doing more. The reality is they may have a full-time staff. They may have, you know, a whole team of part-timers or contractors working for them. So we, we don't know what goes on behind the scenes and we don't know what it took for that person to have that measure of success. And we don't really know if they're happy, even if they, we do perceive that they're successful, the most successful people often, I mean, have their own demons and have their, their own stuff that they deal with. So it's all about perception. I agree. And yeah, so I'll just leave that because I don't <laughs> actually need to add to it. You said everything perfectly. I want to move on to the energy management part of the core four, because I think that that's something that is often overlooked when it comes to holistic wellness. And I had a awesome sports psychologist named Dr. Kristen Keim and her quote that is has been my biggest takeaway is it's not just about time management. It's about energy management. And I really liked that you had, uh, you had something in your book I'd never heard of, and I'm probably going to mispronounce the word, but is it ultradian rhythm? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah I, I never heard that before. So like, do you want to talk about that? And then some things that people can do to help manage their energy better? Yeah. And this is a huge one. And a lot of what I've learned about energy has been influenced by Tony Schwartz and his work with sort of corporate, the corporate world. And he talks a lot about that. But I think, you know, when you break it down, so much of the reason why people aren't feeling well is that they just do not have energy for what it is they want to do. 
And yes, we're all going to have drains on our energy. But I even see this with people who, <laughs> and again, like, where are we getting this from? It's We're getting it from how we're socialized, what we're taught, what we see, which is, well, if you're not getting the results you want to see, especially you know, if, if it comes to the gym or changing your body or whatever it is, it's because you need to do more. And that usually means move more, eat less, comes down to some kind of equation like that. And I think that's simplifying things a little bit too much. And it may be a great sort of generalization. But a lot of the people that I work with and that are in my community are women who are doing so much and outlaying so much energy, whether that's physical, emotional, mental, you name it. And they wonder why at the end, they're like, what's wrong with me at they get to the end of the day and they're exhausted or they get to the end of the day and they've been spending all of their energy trying to eat perfectly during the day and they get to five o'clock and they have willpower their way through the day thinking about the foods they're not supposed to eat and they get home and they're just drained and then it's like the gloves come off and they eat all the things that they tried not to eat during the day and then the the blame comes back to themselves like what's wrong with me why can't I just you know and so the thing is and I kind of write about this in my book I mean a lot of people think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and they think of it like a pyramid or a triangle and at the bottom is your basic needs right safety protection all that stuff and, and then it goes up toward the top, which is kind of the top is like self-actualization. And the idea is that we can't really get to the pinnacle of that unless our basic needs and our food and shelter and love and all these things are taken care of, safety, then we're not going to get to the, we don't have the ability to feel like we're self-actualized. I see that as, I visualize that as actually concentric circles, meaning on the outside for most people, taking care of the physical is like the easiest thing to do. And I'm not saying it's easy, but it's the easiest thing rather than saying, okay, let's go ahead and, and dig back and figure out, you know, spiritually why we're feeling a disconnect here. And most people are in the state, right. Which is just like, I need to figure out how to, to eat and move my body. And so the way I see it and visualize it is like that energy and taking care of that physical allows us to then sometimes drill down a little bit more and a little bit more toward the center of like what's really going on. It's just a different way of looking at stuff. But for me personally, my own thing was like, how do I, you know, if somebody had started out and looked at me 10 years ago and said, you need to deal with your negative self-talk. <laughs> I would have been like, uh, okay, like cool F you. Like I'm not, you know, when you're in such a bad spot, I mean, so for me, what I started to do was eat differently, which at the time I didn't realize, you know, a lot of what I was dealing with was like reactive hypoglycemia. I mean, I felt really crappy. I wasn't sleeping. I mean, so I worked on the physical stuff because it was the most accessible for me and I started to feel better. And when I started to feel better, energy opened up for me in different ways, in different areas where then I had the energy to explore and I wasn't feeling like. I needed to only put my attention on the fact that I wasn't really sleeping well. And I was, you know, trying to use alcohol to fall asleep at night because I was just so tired, but I couldn't relax. And that eating a ton of sugar and processed food was actually causing my blood sugar to swing and I was feeling hangry. So like, how do you even start to, to access all the other stuff? 
so for a lot of the people that I work with, we talk a lot about sleep. Yeah. Everybody's like, oh yeah, I need more sleep. Like that's cute. How am I going to make that happen? And everybody has different demands on their life. And so you may, you know, if you have, a, if you're a parent of like children under five, you may not be able to just like snap your fingers and, you know, go to bed earlier. Yeah. Easier said than done. And there's certainly some sleep hygiene stuff that can be done no matter what your work or sleep schedule is or the demands on your time. Some things you can do once or you just, it's just part of the routine. But sleep is maybe one third of our day. So what's going on in the other two thirds of our day energetically, right? You know, where can we make improvements? And for people that work and that have, you know, for example, whether they're working for themselves or they're working outside the home, we can't always shift corporate culture. We can't always make change in certain areas, but where can we make change? And the ultradian rhythm stuff comes in. We've Most people have probably heard of circadian rhythm, which is this 24-hour, right, our biological clock. Ultradian rhythm refers to the fact that we have shorter cycles within our 24-hour cycle. And the most common one that people know about is sleep. Our sleep goes in cycles, and those cycles are roughly 90 to 120 minutes. The thing is, is that those cycles don't just apply to when we are asleep. And so if you kind of think about, you know, every day at a certain time, do I feel kind of low energy? Now, certainly that could be impacted by what you're eating, especially if, you know, your blood sugar management isn't super great and you just ate or like a really processed carb heavy meal and it's right one o'clock and you're in a meeting and you're <laughs> dozing off, which is what a lot of people experience. But sometimes these lulls and these highs and lows, they're not abnormal in the sense that they are a part of that ultradian rhythm. So can we work in shorter punctuated periods of time? And a lot of people are familiar with the Pomodoro method, which is like we're going to work for a certain amount of time and then take a break. And then we might repeat that cycle throughout the day. And again, I hear a lot of like, but I can't always take a break, you know, taking a break every 90 to 120 minutes. I can't do it in the confines of my job or, you know, I work shift work and I can't do that. Totally understand. So instead of thinking about just the timing, if you can't affect that in your life, what are you doing during the breaks? And this takes discipline. This is not necessarily the norm, but I know when I'm sitting down to work, especially when I'm trying to get stuff done, I'm looking at how much of my time do I faff around? You know, am I really focusing on work? Am I trying to multitask too much? How many tabs are open on my computer? How much am I switching between those tasks? And when I was a teacher, so I was a teacher for 12 years, very oftentimes we would see this in the classroom where we would, you know, we, it would take so long to get the students into the lesson in focus and then we changed the task and then it was like oh here we go again and it takes me like 15 minutes to really get into the task and there is something called switching cost which is how often am I switching between tasks and what is the mental cost of that in terms of getting refocused so for example when I sit down and I know I need to get stuff done and I'm trying to be creative especially the headphones come on the phone goes on a timer for 30 minutes. Everything else gets shut down. I have an app called Self-Control, which is a free app <laughs> you can use on, I think it's for any platform, whether it's Mac OS or Microsoft, but it block, you can enter ahead of time. You know, what are the websites I want to block myself from? <laughs> 
and how long do I want to block myself from it? And I set the timer and then I'm working. And at the end of the 30 minutes, I do it again. Sometimes I'll stand up and take a quick little you know, five minute stretch break. I do it again and then I do it again. So it's a 90 minute block of time. And after that, I stop for 30 minutes and I go do something else. I try not to sit, you know, go, oh, it's break time. I'm going to scroll social media because I just got done with a really mentally demanding task. So I might go walk around the block. I might go putter out in the garden. And again, I work from home, so I have that luxury. But you can replicate this in a, a work environment as well outside of your home. I might put some clothes away. I might put some dishes away. I might sit down and eat a meal. But I try to take a break from work. And you'd be surprised if you can at least start working some of this and managing your energy a little bit more in, in terms of giving yourself back some, you know, pulling yourself back in for a bit. You'd be amazed at how much you can actually get done. And I think when we think about a typical eight-hour workday, there's a whole lot of faffing around that's going on, <laughs> browsing the internet, you know, like, and I do the same thing. And I'm the first one to raise my hand of like, if I let myself just like drift from task to task, I also try to stack my most energetically demanding tasks in the morning when my focus is the highest you know, cortisol is high at that time of the day. I'm really focused. I feel really creative. I have a lot of energy. And as the day goes on, my ability to focus, my ability to create goes down. Now, other people is the opposite. They feel the most creative in the evening. They feel less inhibited. My friend Kate, uh, who I mentioned in the book, Kate loves to write at night. She feels like she can just, she has less inhibition on her. She's just more tired at that point, I guess, mentally. So she just will write if she's feeling like it. For me, I try to save the afternoon for tasks that aren't quite as creatively demanding, like answering emails or responding to things on social media, for example. So I think as part knowing yourself and how you operate, it is thinking about how you're managing yourself during the day in terms of your own energy, because we only, you know, if we're sleeping eight hours, like I said, it's, it's a third of the day. So what's going on during the other two thirds? And again, it's not to overwhelm people and make them think like, oh, this is another thing I need to deal with. <laughs> you know, how am I supposed to pay attention to this? But just subtle little shifts, getting some sunlight or getting outside because it's not always sunny, but just the act of getting outside in the first half of the day or before noon, you know, that has a huge impact on our circadian rhythm as well and can lead to better sleep. So there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. But I think looking for those opportunities to just say, you know, if I exhaust myself during the day, then it's no wonder it's I don't have anything left in the tank when I get home. So how can I make some subtle changes there? And what are some other things people can do while taking a break? Because I know for me, thinking of taking a break is hard. Cause I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do? And let's tailor it to people who don't work at home. Cause most people listening probably mm -hmm. are going to an office. Yes, absolutely. So I would say if you're working in an office environment, you don't have a physically demanding job <laughs> typically, right? So if you're working in an office setting, certainly you could work outside of the home and have a physically demanding job. You could work at a, a warehouse. You could be a laborer of some sort. You could be you know, on your feet. You could be a medical professional who's always walking around. Like, So just kind of knowing that. But thinking about switching, it's called channel switching. So if you have a particularly mentally demanding job and you are quite sedentary, how can you switch that to perhaps a physically centered break or just a break where you allow your mind to rest if your job is very mentally demanding? So if you have a mentally demanding job, 
during your 30 minute break or even 15 minutes, what are you doing during that break? Can you get up and walk around your building and get some fresh air? I mean, so many people are just breathing recirculated air all day. They're, it's very dark inside. We are exposed to artificial lighting. Can we get outside? Can we go sit on a bench for a few minutes and let our eyes rest? I know that sounds really silly and like it wouldn't help, but even adjusting our vision to different points in the distance and giving our eyes a break if we're staring at a screen all day. Can we sit down and have a meal away from our computer? I will raise my hand. I suck at doing this and I work from home. I always feel like, you know, I'm resting, like I'm taking a break. I maybe actually could use this time to read or, and that's certainly fine. But for me, being on a screen when that's my primary job doesn't help. Doing a short workout getting in some movement, doing some basic stretches, moving your body. It doesn't have to be anything bigger, longer, protracted. But if you're primarily sitting, can you stand? Can you do some basic stretches? I mean, there are lots and lots of ways you can physically move or at least give your mind a break. And on the flip side, if you have a physically demanding job and you're on your feet for eight hours or you're on your feet for 12 hours, going and doing a CrossFit workout during your break may not be the best way to recharge your energy. Can you take a break from your physical body. That could mean, you know, sitting in a, again, going outside or sitting in place and doing some deep breathing, even doing some diaphragmatic breathing. That could be taking your uh, Headspace app, putting on your headphones and sitting there for a few quiet minutes while you let your, you just let your body rest and you let your mind rest. It could be, you know, sitting down and doing some reading. It could be catching up on stuff that's a bit more mentally demanding. So if you kind of partition those two things and see like, what am I primarily doing during the day? Am I expending a lot of mental energy? Well, on my breaks, can I do something a bit less mentally demanding? And if I have a physical job, can I give my physical body a break for a bit and perhaps tap into that mental part of my energy or I always think like having a meal is really important sitting down and chewing I mean gosh it's so basic but so many of us are just we don't have a lot of time so we're just shoving a food in this is my nutritional therapist side coming out but like we're not chewing our food we're setting up poor digestion we're eating when we're stressed something as simple as five deep breaths using like really using our belly and just relaxing and like letting our body come back into that parasympathetic state. So, so important. So it could really look different for everybody. And I think as with any lifestyle habit is finding what sticks and what really works for you and speaks to you. But thinking about that idea of channel switching is so powerful. I want to change gears a little bit and talk about self-worth and the scale because I mean, there's a ton of men that listen to this podcast and especially, I don't know about other athletic communities, but I know in endurance sports in particular, being light is associated with being fast, which, you know, there is benefit to being light, but if you're being light and you're being unhealthy or you're have a, an emotional problem with your weight, which many cyclists do we equate light to fast or light to good and it's not healthy. And like people weigh themselves like multiple, I've done this myself. I've like weighed myself multiple times a day. Now I weigh myself maybe once or twice a week and I focus on just being healthy instead of being light. But just in general, there's such a really cancerous relationship with the number on the scale. And I think you've done a really great job in your book talking about how to almost disassociate that. 
Yeah. And I just to speak to what you said, I think this is a huge problem with men as well. It's not talked about. It's even more taboo for a man to talk about his body image issues. And when I talk to women, my intention is never to exclude men from these conversations because they oftentimes deal with very similar things to what we deal with. It's even less societally acceptable to talk about. My perspective, however, is as a woman, I walk through this world as a woman, I identify as a woman, so I can never speak to what it's like to be a man. So when I talk about these things, I talk about it through the lens of my female experience. But I just wanted people to know that men often struggle with this stuff as well. They just talk about it less, which is in some ways a lot more insidious and damaging. So I spent about a decade of my life as an endurance athlete as well. And absolutely felt pressure to have my body be a certain way, which was thinner, smaller, lighter, and therefore faster. I did have a, I did spend a few years racing downhill bikes, but that was a, that was relatively short compared to the rest of, you know, what I did endurance wise, which included long distance running, you know, marathon, half marathon, Xterra racing, and then distance mountain biking. So I know very much what it is like to be in that headspace. And when I was obsessively weighing myself, my day was made or broken by what that scale said when I got on it in the morning. And it wasn't just about how fast I could be you know, running or how fast I could be on the bike. It became a personification of how good I was as a person. And I think Brene Brown says it best when she says, you know, guilt is like you did something wrong and shame is like you are, like you are, you are wrong. You were a bad person. Like, so guilt would be, I did something bad. Shame is like, I am bad. And it became something for me where I just could not separate my own self-worth from what that scale said. And I remember, and I won't say what the weight was because I don't want to be triggering to anybody, but when I find, I got on the scale one morning and I weighed myself and I was like, the lowest weight, this is the lowest weight, right? There it was. There was a number. It was like the lowest weight I had seen in probably since I had begun this process. And I looked at that and I thought for <laughs> an instant, I felt happy and then the next instant, I just thought it's not enough. It's not low enough. Got to keep going. Got to keep getting lower. And so I, you know, you reach that moment and then it's not enough. And it's just like, wow, this is so messed up. And if for me, it, it was probably another year or two. I started lifting weights, started going to CrossFit and there's CrossFit community has its own body image stuff too. Like, so let's not pretend that that's perfect. Every sort of sport has its own body image stuff. But I started lifting weights and I started paying more attention to what I could do with my body. And it was so weird because, you know, I could push myself to ride longer distances. I could push myself to be faster. That is an embodiment of what my body could do, right? I could be faster. I could go further. But there was something about the sort of, gosh, freedom to not correlate what my body could do with what it looked like 
and kind of disassociate those two things, that really gave me the feeling finally of I can be strong. I can do these things. I can do whatever it is I want to do. I can accomplish X, Y, Z. And I don't have to make my body fit a certain mold because my body never fit the mold of a traditional quote unquote endurance athlete. I've always had big legs. And I mean, I know you've got like really awesome quads and like, that's a great thing that people are like, oh, you're so strong. But like, I never felt like I fit the picture of what it was to look like an endurance athlete. And I always would look at pictures of myself, you know, where there was me with my whole team. And I was just like, why do I stick out like such a sore thumb? And so when I started lifting weights, I felt like I finally had a reprieve from that. And I could really think about what my body could do instead of just what it looked like. And that was really the beginning of untangling all of that. But it's still something that I work on. It's, I don't think it's ever going to fully go away because, Sonia, this is how we're socialized. This is how we're raised as a society, right? And everybody's individual experience may be different. You know, you may have a, a household that's more body positive, for example. But if I think about as a kid and growing up and, you know, what is the stuff that I'm primarily seeing? How am I socialized? What does society value? I'm seeing small bodies, I'm not seeing a variety of different bodies in different sports. I'm not seeing that in print. I'm not seeing that in, you know, on television. Or when I do see somebody, for example, in a larger body on, you know, a movie or on TV show or whatever it is, that person is often the funny person, right? They're self-deprecating or, you know, there's something very stereotypical that's made about that person. And there is, you know, our society is so hung up on fat phobia. Like there's so, it's like the layers and layers and layers of this go so deep. And recently, I mean, so I've spent 10 years in this spot of like, okay, I'm untangling myself from diet culture. I'm untangling my, and I'm still like realizing how I'm in it too. But I'm trying to separate myself and see like, can I see diet culture in action? Can I see it in sport? Can I see it when we value certain bodies over others? who is being represented. If I was going back, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years, would I see somebody like myself represented in sport? Could I relate to that person? And the answer was by and large, no, but I went to the doctor last week. I went for a skin check, May Skin Cancer Awareness Month. And I went for a skin check. And this is a doctor I'd never talked to before. And the doctor said, blood pressure is great. Pulse is great. You have great lifestyle habits. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I eat really well. I exercise five times a week. You know, I get my cardio, I get my strength training, all of it. And the last thing that the doctor said to me was, well, you could probably lose a few pounds. And that's that from a doctor. Like, ah. Based on my BMI, right? My BMI is overweight. So my weight to my height ratio puts me in the overweight category. And I get that from a clinical, like, this is why we use BMI point of view. BMI is such BS. It should be called BMI. I know. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, so imagine hearing that, you know, you hear that from a person in a position of, you know, quote, authority and a medical professional. And on one hand, yes, I understand why she said it because the system flagged and said, uh, you know, better mention BMI to this this chick because 
she weighs too much compared to her height. But there was nothing in that doctor's mind that went, okay, let me consider the bigger picture of health for this person. Blood work is good. I mean, like all things considered. So the only thing I did in that moment was just like nervous laugh. I said nothing. I know a me of all people. This is what I talked about in my community. And I still was dumbstruck by this and said nothing. And then I walked away. And then an hour later, I was like, I could have said this. I could have said that. What I really wanted to ask was, what would that accomplish? What would losing weight for me accomplish for me in your, you know, in your medical opinion? Am I going to get healthier? Probably not. I mean, it just was, it was absolutely just mind boggling to me. And, you know, I want to be 100% transparent. Like that did give me pause. And I thought, she right? Like, you know, it made me think because when you're socialized this way to go like, you know, thinner is better, thinner is healthier, thinner is what we achieve, strive for. There was that that moment where I was like, oh, wow, maybe she's right. And 10 years ago, me would have gone home and said, I'm going on a diet. I'm eating as little as I can today. I'm going to go do an extra set of intervals or whatever it is because I need to lose more weight. That was So the behavior, the outcome was different, but I can only imagine how many people would be in that situation and that would trigger disordered eating behaviors or that would send them back on a diet or back into a place of self-loathing. And I'm working really hard in this book and in a lot of the things that I'm doing with my community to broaden the conversation and say, we cannot tell a person's health status, physical health status definitively by their weight. We can't even definitively tell it by their body composition. We cannot tell the person's mental health, emotional health by their scale weight. We can be in smaller bodies and be unhealthy in a variety of ways. We can be in larger bodies and be healthy in a variety of ways or unhealthy. Like we need to separate ourselves from this. And, but it is so ingrained in what we do. And it's so ingrained in our culture. And I don't think I have the be all and all answer. All I can continue to do is, is try to have conversations with people about this stuff. And it breaks my heart when I see it. I see people in my community who are wrestling. You know, if I could like transport myself back to 10 years ago, me, they were, you know, they're me 10 years ago. And I just didn't even know what I didn't know. And I didn't know there was another way. And it it took this process of, like I say, untangling all these things and, and still doing it. But asking questions and thinking about things critically. And that's just not what we're presented with as the norm. So, you know, even when I was the lightest I've ever been, I was probably the most unhealthy. I was not taking care of my body. I was not respecting my body. I was not honoring my body in that way. And yes, I could accomplish a lot physically and I was a good athlete. But if I took, again, a holistic look at my life, I was unhealthy in many, many ways. And people always ask me, well, you probably like, you know, since you started strength training and doing all these things, you're like, you've probably lost weight. And I'm like, I weigh probably a good 20 pounds more now than I did back then. The difference is that I don't obsess about it anymore. So I think for people to understand that there is a cost to everything, 
what is the cost and is it worth it to you? And and so people will say, well, what should I do? What's the right answer? And I'm like, I don't know for you what the right answer is. All I can ask you is to consider the cost versus the benefit and know that at certain times of your life or for whatever your goals are, you may trade. You may trade, make a trade off. And that's your own autonomous decision to make. But at least we can have this conversation and, and lay some of the truths on the table about what it, it might cost. And you still may choose to pursue the highest level of sport. And you still may choose to be a weightlifter and diet down for a meet or whatever it is. But you just need to know that it, everything comes at a cost. And is that cost worth it? Yeah. And I think just like defining what health means to you, it's different for everybody, but knowing that health isn't just how much you weigh or what your BMI is like really going under the hood and looking at your blood work and your vitals and like, are there disease processes happening in your body? That's kind of what in my mind, health is that and all the external things, how you look, how much muscle you have, like those can help influence positively or negatively. You can be the most ripped up person on the planet and be incredibly unhealthy. You can have high cholesterol, you can have low energy, you can have a bad headspace, and you're not healthy at all. So I think that this is a good wrapping up point because your book addresses what health actually looks like for you and how people can apply that in whatever way they want to in their lives. And I love the like the step-by-step 30-day process because it incorporates each element that you have. It's not just about one or the other. And it has bite-sized portions on how to be better every day. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I really hope that people get to experience it in a non-prescriptive way. It's a framework. Everything is always a suggestion. And I really hope that people start tuning into themselves. I know sometimes that's really hard when you've not been listening to yourself or listening to your body. Like, how do you even approach that? But I hope this serves as a a framework and a jumping off point for people to begin to experience that. And how can people join your community? Yeah. So my community is on Facebook. It's called the Harder to Kill Club. And it's a closed group. So you can just request to to join and be added. And we have a lot of conversations like this going on in that group all the time. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it. I hope you guys got a lot out of that episode and make sure you pick up Steph's book, The Core Four, and check out her podcast, Harder to Kill Radio. She and I have been following each other for a really long time and I'm always inspired by the work that she does. And thanks so much for hanging out with us today and listening to the show, wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here with a Crush It Monday in just a few days. <laughs>